1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: It's Wednesday, January 27th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Harry McGee. On today's podcast, the government has extended Level 5 lockdown to early March and brought in some even tougher rules, including mandatory self-isolation for people arriving into the country. There's also mandatory quarantine in hotel rooms for those arriving without a negative test in hand. But the government is resisting growing calls for hotel quarantine for all arrivals as part of a zero-Covid approach that many opposition parties and TDs now support. If zero Covid is not going to be the plan, then what is? The government has not fully told us as yet. Meanwhile, in Brussels, the European Commission has been given an earful to executives at pharma company AstraZeneca, who say they cannot deliver as many doses of their vaccine to EU states this year as originally agreed, throwing a spanner in the works of national vaccination rollout plans. Well, we're not missing any doses this morning on the podcast in no particular order. Political correspondent Jennifer Bray, political reporter Jack Horgan-Jones, and uh, as a very special guest, uh, our European correspondent Naomi O'Leary. And they will be talking us through uh, the latest state of play and also the government uh, announcement yesterday in relation to travel. Travel has been a bit of an accolade's heel for the government uh, since the pandemic first emerged in early March last year. And there were a couple of strategic blunders uh, that were made at the start. Not all of them, which could be blamed on the government because there was very little known about the uh, virus at the time. But there were blunders nonetheless. Perhaps, Jennifer, you can recall some of the early mistakes that were made uh, by government uh, when the outbreak first happened.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think if you cast your mind back to March, it was a very interesting month. Um, We know now that it was a stage in the pandemic, a very early stage, and we were trying to get our head around COVID-19. The true horror of the thing, I think, was only beginning to unfold. It was only really beginning to dawn. We're only starting to understand what this would mean, both in terms of our lives, in terms of domestic restrictions, but also in terms of not being able to travel. That was a month where people started to really realise that travel could be a problem, and we saw at that stage outcry, I suppose you could call it, in relation to people who were coming back from Cheltenham. Um, there was a lot of a lot of anger that that festival wasn't actually cancelled at the time. I'm sure most people remember that, even though it feels like both yesterday, but also 10 years ago. We had, in, in relation to a rugby match that was cancelled, and um, the Italian fans still coming over uh, to Dublin and to Ireland. And, you know, previous to that, we had people, um, especially students, although I think that that was a bit far gone at that stage, but coming back maybe from ski holidays and... Uh, other other trips abroad. So as we know, we had the the lockdown in March and I think for those couple of weeks the issue of travel might not necessarily have been in the forefront of people's minds because obviously we were dealing with what was right at home. When we look at the government's response to travel, I think it's really when we start to move out of those restrictions and when we started when the cases started to come down that we really see maybe a chance where those decisions should have been made. So I'm thinking in particular uh, of May when the National Public Health Emergency Team sat down and examined all issues in relation to travel and at a meeting on May the 8th, they discussed this basically and afterwards they wrote to the, the then Minister for Health, Simon Harris, and they said to him, which actually is very relevant to where we're at now, and I'll read out a passage from it because you'll see that it has real echoes of, of the conversation that we're having now. So the, the team said that they were concerned that as the number of indigenous cases uh, declines and Ireland moves towards an easing of measures, something which we very much hope we'll be in a position to do, um, the relative importance of the risk of importation of cases from overseas increases. They're they're considering the fact that when the cases were high and when people were you know thinking about domestic restrictions, and when there was no real hope of travelling anyway, that it wasn't at the forefront of their mind. When the cases come down, that's when they start thinking about this and and realising that this could be a risk uh, even more when the cases are low. And they do point out that another reason why they're considering this is at that time last May, was because if they didn't bring in regulations or measures or address the risk through travel, it could actually have an impact on the level of public compliance. Basically, people could look at the cases rising from abroad and say, why am I bothering sticking to the restrictions when... You know, you can, anybody can fly in uh, and not bother sticking to any restrictions. So they considered that last May. And I think it's kind of astounding when you look back and realise that it was far back then. But they made four recommendations on May the 8th. The first was for the mandatory completion of the Public Health Passenger Locator Form. We know all about that. That's in now. That's on a statutory footing. Um, the second was a restriction on non-essential travel from all country countries other than uh, European Union countries and the UK, uh, with exceptions for Irish, Irish residents. But the third is important. It was a mandatory regime of self-isolation for 14 days at a designated facility for all persons arriving into Ireland from overseas, with exceptions for the supply chain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the fourth was a public communications campaign.
2: And did the government follow up on these recommendations?
3: Well, they did, to a certain degree. Um, the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, the then Minister for Health, Simon Harris, uh, to the best of my knowledge from my reporting at the time, he did bring this letter to Cabinet and he did bring these four recommendations to Cabinet and discuss um, the potential and the need for a 14-day isolation period. Now, I'm not 100% whether he said that they need a designated facility or whether it was just a 14-day mandatory quarantine at home, etc. But either ways, they discussed the 14-day period. I know that for certain. They decided afterwards what they will go ahead with was the mandatory Uh, Passenger locator form. That's what they took from it. And they said that uh, officials after that cabinet meeting last May would address the uh, idea of a 14 day facility. And to a certain degree, that's where that idea kind of died at the time.
2: Okay, now there was one thing that did emerge out of it, and that was the uh, so called green list of, of safe countries. It was an idea that Leo Varadkar, I think, first floated. And uh, it was a kind of a bit of a belly flop from the start, but maybe explain what the idea behind the Green List was and how it actually worked in operation and why it hit the dirt uh, so relatively early in its particular career.
3: It is important to remember that in late May, around the 22nd of May, the UK at that time had only brought in the idea of a 14-day self-isolation period if you had travelled, you know. So even though the public health team were ahead of the curve and this other countries were still including the UK, only bringing in the self-isolation period. And we did that then too. And that was still late May. And I think when we look at the green list and when we look at those measures, we're actually looking at early July. And I remember the the cabinet meeting that took place um, in Dublin Castle at the time. And the new government had just come in. And it was Stephen Donnelly as the Minister for Health. It was um, Simon Coveney as the Minister for Foreign Affairs. And they addressed this issue of the green list and the context is important about why they did this is because at that time when cases were lower uh, at the summer as we know last year the number of cases from travel had increased so at that time it had increased from the best of my knowledge from around two percent cases linked to foreign travel to 17 percent by early July last year so it became even more imperative that the government did actually act um, and decide to do something about it so this after this is where this green list came into effect and the green list was a list of countries where people could travel to and from without having to restrict their movements. Then there was the different colours that you would come in from. Let's say you came in from a red country. There were different restrictions then in, in terms of your movement and in relation to an isolation period that you would have to undertake. Um, and I remember at that time as well, one of the big issues that also came up was the fact that while they're bringing this green list and talking about tracking people on a mandatory the mandatory passenger locator form, it actually, this was the first time we learned that very many people weren't being tracked and a lot of people weren't answering follow-up calls. And at that stage, the Minister for uh, Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, said they were going to bring in place um, a call centre effectively Um, I think it was supposed to be um, operated by a private firm and they would ramp up those numbers of people who were being contacted.
2: Which brings us back uh, as a neat segue to the passenger locator forms and this notion that you said that was first floated uh, several months previously, but never really was implemented to the fullest degree. Jack, you've written quite a lot about passenger locator forms and their efficacy. Uh, the system was manual at the start. It moved on to an electronic system uh, in the autumn. But there have been question marks about its efficacy right from the beginning.
1: That's right, Harry. Um, and, and actually, looking back this morning, uh, the first piece that I wrote about the, uh, the follow up on the passenger locator forms, which was a piece that arose from a, a parliamentary question that was put down by the social democrats co-leader roshan shortall and it's it's noteworthy as well actually that the social democrats have been out on this issue early and often and and kind of leading the way in the criticism and i remember when it was sent through to me i actually thought there must have been some mistake you know i thought there must have been some kind of apples and oranges thing going on or some kind of you know terminological inexactitude and I, I i i i checked it so extensively before running it because i just couldn't believe that only 4100 calls had been made to check up on sixty thousand arrivals into Dublin Airport, and that kind of fairly laissez-faire approach to checking up on the information that was provided in the uh, in the passenger locator form, I think, was compounded certainly in those early days by a kind of inverse turf war over whose responsibility this actually was. Was it up to the Department of Health to do it? Was it up to the Department of Transport? Was it up to the Border Management Unit? And 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 ultimately. Um, this kind of fell between several stools and you have you arrived in a, a situation where as as time wore on um, they it, I think it eventually fell to the border management unit, but they didn't really have the manpower to to properly invigilate all the people that were coming in. And and I, myself and others ran a series of stories across the summer and into the, the autumn and winter months, you know, less than a quarter of passenger locator forms followed up with calls Um, And and 16% of people, Simon Carswell wrote, who arrived into the state over Christmas and New Year period received follow-up calls. And there was this kind of emphasis on, you know, yes, we're contacting a lot of people, but a lot of it was done by automated text message. And if you talk to people who really understand this stuff and really know about this stuff, they make the point that, you know, there is is a, a correlation between the degree to which people actually... Uh, obey the request that is made of them and the degree to which they think they're being monitored in in doing so. you know so it, it's quite easy to effectively ignore a text message. it's less it's less easy to to ignore a phone call and certainly it's less easy to to ignore a series of phone calls, nay, a knock at the door from the guards, which is kind of the direction that we're moving in hand in hand with with making self quarantine at home mandatory. At the moment, but basically, if if you're to 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 sum it all up, you know the 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 sum total of the the government's efforts hitherto has been to kind of ask relatively nicely to make it uh, illegal not to fill in the passenger locator form, which is hardly the most onerous requirement uh, made of anyone, and then to kind of hope for the best. Um, and I think that that a couple of things have have coalesced to make that fairly unsustainable going forward, some of them political, some of them epidemiological. Um in the first instance, the political, you know, they've been roundly taken over by both by, by the opposition, by the public health experts, and also by the, the wider European attitude toward this, which is something that I think Naomi will be able to, to speak to. And then from a kind of from a public health point of view as well, while we're all swimming in virus at the moment and it's less kind of important to stop vir- uh, cases coming in, we are also facing the novel threat of variants of concern. One of which was was seeded extensively before we even really knew it was it was happening. That's the UK variant, but we're also facing into the Brazilian and South African variants, and 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 therefore placing a break on arrivals from those countries in an effort to stop that that variant becoming what those variants becoming widespread here becomes increasingly important. I think that's why we've ended up moving quite quickly to a situation whereby we've done effectively a fairly threadbare job on travel to doing trying to do something quite quite more complete, albeit not without its own fair share of criticism from the opposition since it was introduced yesterday.
2: Yeah, in a wonderful Jungian moment there, Jack, you were talking about the psychological impact of such deterrence being introduced. And I think that people, if they fear that there will be repercussions or consequences uh, to their actions or to their lack of action, they will be more willing are more amenable to complying to, to regulations. I think one of the difficulties that we had, and it manifested itself in the run-up to Christmas, was people knew that if they didn't comply with rules in relation to self-isolation, there wouldn't be any consequences that would flow from that. And I thought we saw that manifested in Christmas with the spike. And a lot of it, and some of it, uh, has been attributed to people coming back from the UK uh, who didn't self-isolate. And there was no follow up, no monitoring, uh, no consequences for them. And I think Bell Mullet has been uh, uh, sent out as a particular signal example of how that particular system broke down.
1: Yeah. I th- and, and, and again, I don't know if you recall just before Christmas, um, but I had this kind of growing sense of dread around the news reporting that was going on because the, the, the variant was beginning to emerge in the UK. The UK was beginning to kind of be hermetically sealed off. Um, And we were introducing travel bans. But a lot of the news coverage was still focusing on this kind of last chopper out of Saigon. uh, Irish people rushing to the airport, trying, struggling to get back. And, And there was almost this kind of thread running through it of like, you know, home in time for Christmas. Fantastic. But of course, what we know now is that certainly some percentage of these people were bringing that variant back with them. And as you say, there was no kind of coercive or, you know, oversight aspect to to the state's interaction with these people, but to call it consequence free is, is absolutely not the case and, and we see the consequences in places like Belmont. we see the the consequences right across the country. The consequences are um, an enormous body body count uh, in 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 january and and the the, the rampant spread of the b one one seven variant you know um, so I think it will while there are mitigating factors, I think that 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 attitude and and the failings to, to police properly travel and and socialisation over Christmas will will be seen as one of the signatory mistakes of of pandemic policy and pandemic management by the government so far.
2: Okay, well, the great uh, philosopher Don Scotus said that all comparisons are odious. But as journalists, that's exactly what we do for our uh, bread and butter. And nobody has to make comparisons uh, in a more diverse uh, fashion than our European correspondent, Naomi O'Leary, who will now have the task of trying to compare our system here with that of other European countries. Just in terms of travel and in terms of self-isolation, what, what, what are the lessons that we can learn from uh, Europe, Naomi? Where are the places in Europe which have done it particularly well or particularly badly in your view?
0: I mean, to be blunt, the whole of the EU is pretty much a basket case in this respect. Like, if we were comparing Ireland to other EU countries, they're all bad. Um, Europe's just done really badly in terms of the pandemic um some countries experimented with hotel quarantines at the very beginning in march and so on when they had numbers of populations who were coming back from places like china um but it was never implemented in as like a comprehensive policy um also you know the continent does have a difficulty which is that it's extremely integrated um, in the initial panic of the pandemic we had sort of unilateral border closures with checks on borders between places like Poland and Germany. And the result of that was there was massive disruption to supply chains, trucks queuing for days at a time. Lots of Baltic citizens couldn't get home um, to Latvia and um, Lithuania and so on to uh, because they were blocked the wrong side of the Polish border and Poland wouldn't let them travel through. Boats had to be sent to collect them. And this was kind of a scarring experience for the EU because, you know, the notion of free travel in the continent is really fundamental. It's one of its biggest achievements. So it's kind of psychologically difficult for it to face this kind of breakdown in cooperation where states weren't even talking to each other. And this resulted in um, what now is a very short-sighted policy in retrospect, which was a concerted effort to open up travel during the summer. And this was partly driven by economic concerns because the states... That are most vulnerable to the pandemic, Uh, places like Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, um, the weaker economies, they're really dependent on tourism. And so there was a big push from them, from Croatia as well, is also very dependent on, on tourism, to allow for a summer season where tourists could come. And that was reflected, you know, at a policy level by the European Commission, that was the motive for setting up things like the traffic light system for europe it was to in the name of trying to allow citizens to travel safely now fast forward until now there's a complete sea change that's absolutely not the policy anymore the european commission is saying do not travel that's the policy that's rule number one don't travel Um, and so we the reasons for this is really i think um substantially to do with ireland's post-christmas spike Um, the extent of the dramatic surge in ireland from being the least affected in the EU, one of them, to being number one on the list of the European Center for Disease Protection and Control, Prevention and Control. Um, that scared uh, other EU countries so much as to the potential for new variants um, that it's, you know, it's fueled a big demand for tough travel restrictions. Because of these new variants, the UK the one that initially arose in the UK being more infectious, but also the potential for new ones that the vaccines won't work against this would just, you know, sink the entire EU policy about how to get out of the pandemic. Um, So that's why you have the likes of Germany warning that they could unilaterally close their borders unless there's a joint policy about curbing travel agreed. Belgium just went ahead and banned tourism. So, you know, it's all EU states try to be coherent on this and come up with a joint policy, but they all ultimately have the power to put in their own national policies if they want to. You know, borders are a national competence. Um, So what has the EU now proposed? The Commission proposed on Monday a new category uh, on the traffic light system. So it's not just green, yellow yellow and red. There's also deep red, dark red, which Ireland would fall into as the, you know, current hotspot in the EU. And for travellers from those countries, um, there would be a number of requirements. And this goes for even people who are travelling for work and reasons deemed essential. And that would be a test prior to arrival. You have to have a clear COVID test, 72 hours, PCR one, before you leave and present that. Then on arrival in the state where you're going to, there are more restrictions, which is kind of up to the state concern, depending on their capacity and so on. And that could be extra testing plus quarantine. The rules are neutral on the question about whether this should be hotel quarantine or not. It's kind of up to them.
2: That's a test, Naomi, on arrival, isn't it? It it could be a PCR test on arrival, in addition to the test taken 72 hours beforehand. That's right, and plus the possibility of a test five days later if they want to be released from quarantine early
0: all of all of this is up to national authorities, but yeah these are these are among the suggestions, and there also would be an e u wide passenger form, which they tried to implement already, but it hasn't really gone anywhere because it's quite complicated
2: um uh, and at what stage is this at at present uh, how close to being Kuwait is it?
0: It's been proposed and it's been discussed by member states. It hasn't been agreed at pan eu level um remember like they can agree these things but ultimately because it's a national competence you know member states can go ahead with their own policy and what we've seen so far is that you do have different member states who just have kind of different view on this you have ones that are more cautious and ones that are less cautious like denmark would be among the more cautious ones they kind of ban flights and um, more uh, happily more trigger happy on that um um so it, it's And and as I say, Belgium has already banned tourism. Um, So, you know, ultimately it is up to the national member states themselves.
2: Yeah, and you you said it's a basket case and you see very varying responses to the pandemic in in European countries. I mean, the Netherlands, for example, has imposed a curfew over the past number of days. And that has led to some very unseemly uh, riots and public uh, disturbances. Uh, But there have been curfews in other places as well. I mean, the jury is still out. Uh, as to the efficacy of them, especially when people start rioting on streets.
0: Yeah, I mean, there isn't that enormous, there isn't an enormous difference between EU countries, really. Um, So, I mean, I say they're a basket case in in, in terms of international comparisons. Um, You know, Europe is pretty much like the worst region in terms of, and the UK, I'm including the UK in that, um, in terms of how to manage pandemic. You know, it just didn't follow best practice. It decided to, we all decided to just invent our own way of doing it. Um, mostly, you know, focused around, well, how little can we change, which was a really self-defeating approach. And we're seeing that now because we're still struggling with it, whereas other countries have, the you know, numbers down so low that they can pretty much have a normal life. Um, so, yeah, in the Netherlands, there are riots. There have been riots. Last night, they were less serious than the two prior nights. Um, the Netherlands has, from the beginning, been one of the countries' which has had a more laissez-faire approach. It's a bit like Sweden, but it gets less attention than Sweden. It also, you know, the prime minister there also talked about um, getting herd immunity, uh, promoted the idea that once you had the virus once, then, you know, it was was a fairly non-serious thing and then you wouldn't get it again, which of course, you know, we know now uh, isn't scientifically robust. There isn't evidence for that. Um, Also only recommended the wearing of face masks very, very late on in the autumn, Uh, resisted that until then, and has, you know, really kind of promoted the idea, I suppose, that especially for young people, the virus isn't a particularly serious thing. Um, now there's questions over that, of course, because many people suffer from long COVID, and you know, a certain percentage of young people have died of it ever since the beginning. Uh, but I think this has, you know, created um, a public understanding of the disease in the Netherlands, which makes it difficult to suddenly pivot to uh, more tough restrictions, which they did in December. They finally imposed what would be recognised in other countries as a lockdown by um, closing essential sh- uh, non-essential shops. So for, until then, closed shops had always been open, for example. Um, and this is still kind of self-policing. So a lot of shops do continue to open if they say that they're essential for one reason or another. Um, it's very difficult to make international comparisons on these things. Um, but yes, certainly the the curfew that was introduced, which follows the curfews in a number of other countries, it's um, it has the clear majority support of the Dutch population, occur- according to polls, but it has triggered... Uh, protests by largely young men, mostly kind of teenage-age men. Um, I think a relevant context to that is that around this time of year, the Netherlands does see this kind of street. Um, I don't know if you want to call it anarchy. To a lesser extent, but lots of people setting off fireworks, making bonfires in the streets, sometimes burning cars. That kind of thing does happen around this time of year, around New Year's Eve, uh, in like every year in the Netherlands. So you have this kind of underlying... I suppose, tendency or, you know, cultural acceptance or readiness to kind of go out and do things on the street around this time of year. So I think that is relevant. We'll see whether these uh, these protests continue. There has been a big community response with things like uh, supporters of football clubs volunteering to come out as like vigilante patrols to make sure that rioters don't uh, smash up hospitals or shops like they did um, in, in previous nights. Um, and there does seem to be quite a public backlash against this.
2: So we move back to uh, the events of this week and the government uh, decision in relation to travel uh, that was made uh, at the Cabinet on Tuesday. It did not come before time. And uh, some parties, in fairness as the Social Democrats, Roisin Shortall and Catherine Murphy, uh, they have been uh, uh, banging on about this theme for many, many months. So suddenly we're seeing a ramping up of uh, travel restrictions uh, by uh, the government. But when you actually look at it, you find that it's almost as if it's written on the back of a supermarket receipt. You see all these measures and you say, well, when are they going to be implemented? And they said, well, no, that's um, that's one for the Attorney General to have a look at and uh, not quite operational uh, or implementable yet. And it seems to me uh, there's a lot of measures, but the uh, Attorney General will be more busy than Roger Federer trying to deal with all these speculative lobs uh, coming from the other side of the net, from government ministers. I mean, there's very little of the actual uh, uh, decisions that were made that are actually operational right here, right now. I know that you've been looking at that a little bit, Jack, over the past 24 hours. What, what's your impression of the uh, policy and if that policy is going to actually work or not? Um, first of all,
1: you're right, yeah. So, I mean, what's what's different this morning on Wednesday that, that, that wasn't the case on, on Tuesday? Like we already had increased guarded checkpoints going to the airports from the weekend. So that's still in place. So it's 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 newish, but it's not particularly new in, in the middle of this week. Um I think that the the, the most real change is it seems to be around visa free travel from South Africa, Brazil. And uh, other other South American countries, um, but that's not really a kind of sea change for most people. I mean, you would imagine that the numbers of people arriving in from there are are pretty pretty low, anyway. Uh, There'll be more checkpoints kind of within the five k of the border, um, and and the the cops have have the capacity to send people. Back there, but like a lot of the the more kind of harsh measures, as you say, haven't yet been kind of operationalized to borrow the jargon. So, for example, they want to uh, fine people non residents uh, around the border who are making non essential journeys. That's not in place yet. They have to get Attorney General advice on that. They want to uh, send people arriving without a PCR test or from Brazil or South Africa. mandatory hotel quarantine that's not ready yet for a variety of reasons first of all because they haven't actually done the practical work on it they don't know how they're going to get people to the hotel they don't know which hotel they're going to go to they don't know exactly what powers they're going to use to detain them they have problems around uk and eu citizens which needs them to 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 revisit regs and, and primary legislation and secondary legislation there's also the potential need to to issue new legislation around the mandatory, uh, mandatory quarantine at home, which is really the big moving part here. That's the one that's going to, that's the one that's going to impact the most amount of people. So um, we don't actually know. And it's funny talking to government last night and, and, and coming to them with these kind of questions. Like the vast majority of responses were that's still to be worked out. And I think that that's a real kind of political vulnerability because, as Jennifer said at the top, You know, this has been on the agenda. Something roughly this shape and size and these kind of restrictions has been on the agenda since last May. Um, So the idea that, you know, we are only now announcing these measures and looking at how difficult, easy or otherwise it will be to implement them, I think leaves the government really vulnerable. And if, for example, there were difficulties around mandatory home quarantining and the oversight of that, which I think there may well be. I mean, we know, Harry, that you spoke to to Liam Herrick, who's the the chair of the Irish Council on Civil Liberties last night, and he was raising concerns around this. There are also issues around, you know, um, the, the powers or otherwise of the Gardaí to police someone under what a government source conceded to me last night is effectively a kind of form of house arrest and 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 whether that's something the guards will be interested in doing whether they'll have the resources to do that because seeing as this will apply to effectively everyone who's coming into the country apart from those who are are shuffled off to the gulag of of mandatory hotel quarantine that would be a a fairly significant and onerous operational requirement and and figuring out whether they actually have the capacity to do that will be a, a big piece so Short short answer is you know in terms of uh, headline grabbing announcements, it's been fairly substantial. But in terms of rubber meeting road, um, there there remains some distance to be travelled before all this stuff is is actually in place. And then, like in addition to that, you have the the vulnerability on the other flank, which is that you know the the opposition will maintain that even the measures that have been announced yes even though and, and, and aren't ready to put in place they're not they're not enough and, and they're only partial and it, it's a leaky kind of it's a leaky sieve and and what's that phrase that Leo Varadkar used on Claire Brown the other night it's like like soup in a sieve and now that's being turned against them and I see the opposition have taken taken that up and and, and borrowed that particular culinary metaphor so even even though they've they've moved even though the government have moved to kind of catch up on, on where the expect, where the public expectation was and where the public health expectation was on this. I think there's there's still a kind of mind the gap issue there for them and and, and I think the next little while is fairly fraught with, with political risk on this front.
2: Yeah I mean one of the things that um people were, were struck at was that travel was still occurring. I mean I know it's fallen precipitously the volume of travel, but there is still travel. Connor McMurrow of Primetime and RTE Jennifer uh, was out of Dublin Airport last night and uh, captured some very uh, interesting footage of uh, people arriving back from uh, Lanzarote. Now, none of them were doing anything illegal, but people were surprised that people were still going on holidays uh, at the height uh, of the worst moment of the pandemic for us. And in addition, there were Spanish students who were coming back to stay with host families after uh, spending time in Spain. So uh, obviously, uh, there is still uh, travel going on to a... Certain extent. And I think the government, what it's trying to do is trying to uh, deter that and to reduce uh, um, travel, as one government minister said to me, to a dribble, uh, uh, if uh, at all. Do you think that these new measures will be uh, effective? Do you think that people will be uh, deterred uh, from travelling uh, and will actually do what they're required to do self isolate, uh, fill out the forms? Uh, tell passenger uh, locator officials exactly uh, where they are now. Uh, Naomi, actually, just as before, we we were speaking was saying it's not critical now because we're in the middle of it now we're kind of in effective lockdown. But when this becomes really important, uh, is when uh, things begin to open up again in March. And just perhaps as part of your answer, you might. Uh, incorporate what Pat Leahy was writing about this morning, saying that there doesn't seem to be a government strategy uh, for uh, March when the actual uh, Level 5 lockdown is lifted. He he doesn't really seem to know uh, because he hasn't got the information from government as to what's going to happen then.
3: Yes, lots there, Harry. Um, I think the measures as they're outlined and as they were decided yesterday, which Jack has talked us through, um, will be deterrent to a certain degree. And my own feeling is as long as there is a potential for you not to have to face the consequences, then there'll always be a certain amount of people who travel. So I I know that the Association um, of Guard, Guard the sergeants and inspectors have real concerns about this idea of a mandatory quarantine at home, because, you know, there are so many questions about whether, you know, if a guard comes to your door, obviously they, they can't come in you don't have to answer the door and you don't have to be there. And what happens if you're not there? And all of this has not been worked out. And I think while there's still that sort of very fuzzy element to the plan, it's very hard to imagine that everybody will be deterred um, from doing this. And over the weekend, Michal Martin did say on the radio, I think his exact phrase was, we want to make this so goddamn difficult that people don't want to travel. And that is the the aim of the game here. Um, From talking to ministers um, after the cabinet meeting, Yesterday uh, and this morning as well, actually, I do get a feeling that uh, many of them feel themselves that it's not enough. We know that the cabinet meeting went on for a little over four hours yesterday, and one of the most contentious issues in it uh, was the fact that there is, as it went in the proposals to cabinet, this idea of mandatory quarantine at home, people felt it was quite woolly the way it was phrased, and that when they came out of cabinet, they were going to be subjected to a lot of public criticism saying, You have not gone far enough. So they, spent a couple of hours tightening up the language on that. So actually, when Leo Varadkar came out at the press conference afterwards, he was able to say, well, effectively, everybody now will be going into some kind of uh, mandatory quarantine, whether it's in a a hotel, a designated facility, or in your home. And it sounds like a great line that the government have now introduced mandatory quarantine for everybody. But as we know, there is huge doubts. There are huge doubts around how it can be enforced. And I know the guards will have um, a lot to say about that, I think. Um, On your latter question which I believe was about the uh, Pat Leahy's piece about uh, what is the government's plan. Yep, yeah, there's definitely, I think journalists who were at that press conference yesterday, you were there yourself, Harry, and, you know, there were many questions about, OK, what is the plan, you know, when we start to hopefully move out of these restrictions and, you know, into a, a brighter day, basically, because there is a real sense in government that, as someone put it to me this morning, the figures are going to collapse they're going to have and half and half until hopefully by the end of February we're around 200 300 cases which would be ideal that's when the pressure comes on uh, in terms of travel but also in terms of your question about what is the plan the plan is as far as i can see it vaccination vaccination is the plan uh, get as many of the uh, vulnerable population uh, inoculated as early as possible um, in order to stabilize the health system that's the number one priority After that, you move on to the other categories. Um, And we know uh, from talking in the podcast before what the prioritisation is for that. Now, as we know, all of this has hit, we've had many, many roadblocks. And I think people's spirit has been, I suppose, dented. I think people feel a bit pessimistic in recent days because we hoped that there would be a clear path of vaccinations and vaccine companies ramping up the access over the coming weeks. But we see now issues in relation to AstraZeneca, um, and, you know, there's still no real clarity about the Johnson and Johnson, the Janssen vaccine when that will be available. And we know about the issues with Pfizer and them having to temporarily ramp down so that they can longer term ramp up. So the, the, the plan, as far as I can see it, is vaccination. The problem with that plan is it's very open to external events and it is completely subject to change every single day.
2: Which brings us back to the issue of vaccines. Uh, During the week, the uh, president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, released a video in which she excoriated vaccine manufacturers. And it came after a call with AstraZeneca, which, as we have heard, has been at the centre of the storm uh, over its uh, efficacy amongst the older cohort over supply and over the question of whether or not it's going to get approval by the EU uh, or not. Uh, Naomi, perhaps you could enlighten us on all those issues and also on a what seems to be a solar run by Germany uh, where it's bought a massive uh, batch of the antibody treatment uh, that was used uh, for Donald Trump uh, when he uh, was infected with coronavirus last year.
0: The um, German newspaper Handelsblatt uh, reported citing an anonymous source um, that there were questions about the efficacy of the AstraZeneca vaccine for older groups. This was robustly denied not only by the company AstraZeneca, but also by the German health ministry uh, where this you know source supposedly was. Um, so we don't know where this information is coming from. Um, it's possible that there's some kind of conflation because there is um, a question about how much evidence of the vaccine there is among older groups. Because in the in AstraZeneca's trial, there weren't that many older people that took part because they started off using it on, um, testing it on younger people just to make absolutely sure it was safe before moving on to vulnerable people. Um, so relatively a smaller percentage of those who took part were older people. So the European Medicines Agency has said they expect to make a decision on it, hopefully this week, so we'll probably here on Friday. Um, I mean, it has been approved in several jurisdictions, not just the UK, but also elsewhere. Um, So it would, I think, be quite surprising if the EU didn't approve it. Um, But the head of the European Medicines Agency, Emer Cook, said that it is possible in general, she wasn't talking about the AstraZeneca specifically, but she said, you know, in general, it is possible to approve vaccines for a single, for a limited age bracket. So it's possible, for example, to approve it not uh, for for ages between 18 and 65 something like that. So we could see something of that, but we we, may, we will only find out on Friday. The issue about Germany is Germany is a big rich, powerful country, right? If Germany went in as an, as a nation into the global marketplace for vaccines like Israel did and UK did, it would probably be doing better than it would instead of clubbing up with the EU. The, the same wouldn't probably go for countries like Ireland. Smaller countries would have probably done worse. Um, that means that there's an awful lot of pr- political pressure on the German government to do everything it can to shore up, to to, to fix that gap, you know, to get medicines to German people, um, to to make them, you know, have, have as much resources as they can.
2: OK, on that point, I think we can uh, draw this particular podcast to a close. That's all for this episode of Inside Politics. I'm very thankful to Jack Horgan-Jones, to Jennifer Bray and Naomi O'Leary for their fascinating contributions and insight. Thanks also to producer Declan Conlon. Uh, Until next time, goodbye and thank you very much indeed for listening.